You're listening to the RUV English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is slash English. This is Ruv English. Hello, I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for your company as ever. It's Monday morning and we have a lot to look back on and a lot to look ahead to in Iceland this week in general and in the capital in Reykjavik specifically. But we, we start by looking back on the week and I guess the weekend. And my guest today is Valo Gunnarsson, journalist and author. We'll talk about the work, the book that you have coming out at the end of the month in just a few minutes. But welcome, Valo. Thank you. Uh, shall we start with your revision? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I think, a surprise to a lot of people that Iceland didn't qualify. There was a head of steam behind that entry. I don't know. It, it felt to me that um, hopes weren't really very high. Really? Yeah. I mean, people were sort of playing down. And consensus was it's not a great song and it wasn't great staging. But uh, on the night itself, Dilio really gave it her all. Yeah, yeah. And she sort of Absolutely. elevated it, I think, above what it was. So I think during that night, there were some hopes being raised. And, you know, apparently we wound up number 11 yes, out of yes. <laughs> but the 10 <laughs> first qualifiers. So. Yeah, number 11 <laughs> in the second semi-final. It was about 30 points behind. So there was a bit of a gap between 11th and 10th. Yeah, place, yeah. But it was, it was, it's a, we claim that's a sort of moral victory. And, yeah. But and I mean, we, we had we had one chance to win Eurovision when we would have in 2020 with Tadeo Gagnamagnet. Absolutely. And what did they do? They shut down the whole world, <laughs> which is somehow seen as better than letting Iceland win Eurovision that one yeah. time. Uh, well, I, 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 you know, I wonder if he can perform again. Probably not. He did perform the year after and came fourth. A very creditable performance, but he yeah, would but have it, won in 2020. Yeah, it no just wasn't as catchy a song as, as the yeah, previous one. Yeah. So, What still happens, though, in Iceland, and I know this because five years ago I met you for a drink after you'd been to see the Eurovision Song Contest on the big screen in Bio Paradis. Mm. And this was a year when Iceland hadn't even qualified. It was 2018, I think. So... Iceland not being in the competition is disappointing, but it doesn't put people off from watching the show, does it? No, I think it's because we like to pretend that spring or summer is coming. <laughs> we hope that this year it will. So, well, not judging by the weather over the weekend, today even in the north of the country, there's been blizzards. Yeah, I mean, here it's been raining and, yeah. and shining. But yeah, I think it's also got something to do with that. It's Everyone's exams are finished and it's sort of just the first, you know, postmark for, for summer. So the timing has something to do with it. And of course, it's become a tradition since 1986 when we were so yes. sure we were going to win that first <laughs> time. We've never been so sure of that since. Well, you're also someone that spends a lot of time in Finland. And that country came second in the Eurovision Song Contest this year. Lots of people think it was a kind of moral victory because the Finnish entry got most points among all the, the voters as opposed to the jury. Were you a fan? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, I mean, Eurovision isn't type of music that I usually listen to. I'm more into sort of old time rock and roll or, or sentimental yes. folk music or something. <laughs> but uh, I, I tend to prefer songs in Eurovision that have a bit sort of more folksy theme. You know, it may be cliche, but for for some Spain or Albania or you know, use some of their traditions. I, I tend to prefer or, or just the, the lunacy of Croatia and. <laughs> What was going on in that end? Uh, no one knows, but it was interesting to watch. <laughs> and even even the, uh, Serbia with their, their cyberpunk, you know, the theme. Uh, yeah, and all all my favorites sort of wound up at the bottom. So I, you know, apparently <laughs> I I don't have an ear for this. I, I saw really nothing in the Swedish song, and then when the Finns were both because I thought it was a better song, 
also because you know, as you said, I've, I've lived in Finland and I have connections with Finland. So yeah. I, I, by yeah. the end, I was really hoping for Finland. And I mean, this new system it does make it more exciting because it used to be the by the middle of the, the point counting, you yeah. know what's going to happen. But this way, the, up until the end, there is this yes. excitement as to you know Sweden was on top and then Finland comes to number two and then Sweden or actually goes to the top and then Sweden goes up again. So. It's it's more exciting, but I, I almost do wonder with a competition like Eurovision, do we need judges? You know, I'm all for professional criticism and so on, but I feel in, in a competition like this, you know, mm. maybe we should just let the water set. Also, last year when I, I really was rooting for Ukraine, and yeah. they weren't doing all that well until the audience votes came in and they searched ahead. So Yeah, I mean, that was a love letter from people right across Europe to Ukraine, wasn't it? I mean, the song was good, but it was also about a lot of people in their yeah. millions saying, we support Ukraine. And, and again, that's a place where you spend a lot of time. This was Ukraine effectively hosting, or the, or the UK hosting on behalf of Ukraine for obvious reasons. Do you think the UK did a good job and did Ukraine proud? I think so. I mean, you know, you could, of course, something like this has never been done before no. in the annals of Eurovision, so that's already strange. Um, you know, maybe it was a little bit forced. Sometimes you could argue making these connections between Ukraine and, and UK. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. Like, we've, we've got a castle as well. We've yeah. got a library as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that was quite sweet, actually. Yeah, but I mean, on the whole, I think, um, I think it worked well, and I think that... For me, the most touching moment of Eurovision this year was when uh, was Rebecca Ferguson and Alia were singing together. Uh, so one one British, one Ukrainian yes, singing yes, together, one Ordinary World, yeah. uh, which is already one of Duran Duran's best songs. But it just took on new meaning there. It's you know, I want to get out of the crazy and return back to this yeah. ordinary world. And I've heard, irrespective of Duran Duran, uh, Ukrainian people use almost those exact same words when mm. they come over to Poland and they're back in an ordinary world, the ordinary world of the EU, which no longer exists in Ukraine, of course, yes. where there's war yes. and, 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 you know, everything's crazy and people just want to go back to that, you know, and, and, and yeah, that, that was probably, I think, captured in that, that performance. Well, I think that across all of Europe, again, there is still huge support for U Ukraine and to an extent that was replicated in the voting as well, a, a very strong performance by Ukraine in what was their contest? But it moves to Sweden next year for the 50th uh, anniversary of ABBA's win. And the conspiracy theorists already <laughs> saying that that's not a coincidence. That <laughs> was no, the intended they, outcome. They did drag Bjorn out. Or was it Benny? No, I think it was Bjorn for that. He's one of the boys. So. Yeah. <laughs> they that. I would have liked it to be in Finland also because it's closer to Russia. So it's, uh, it would have been nice to have it there. Yes. But not only NATO rumbling up against Russia's borders, but Eurovision. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it used to be said that Eurovision countries don't go to war with one another. I mean, that has to be rewritten, yes, certainly, because yes. it's not true. But still, there is, you know, I mean, the Eurovision was founded around the idea of Europe coming together after after World War Two, And, you know, it does retain some of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so. And next year's contest will be interesting for a whole variety of reasons, maybe some of which we don't even see or know about yet. I want to turn to a story which I know exercises a lot of people who follow what happens in Iceland, and that's the issue of whaling. And it's been back on the agenda 
for a, a number of reasons, not least this report from MAST, which is the Food and Veterinary Authority in Iceland, basically saying that the law hasn't been broken, but it's come pretty close. And they also say that whaling, the hunting of large whales, is not compatible with the aims of the Animal Welfare Act. You've got the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs saying that whaling is morally justifiable if it's sustainable. This remains an issue, a tricky issue, a live issue for Iceland. Yeah, uh, and, and it's completely pointless. Um, I mean, the, I did a feature in this great went 20 years ago where mm. I thorough research and, and the conclusion was really simple. If you make more money from whale watching than whale killing, then, yeah. I mean, that really yeah. should be the end of the debate. Well, that, that's also what the Minister of Foreign Affairs has said in her comments. She also said we have to evaluate whether it makes economic sense based on supply and demand to continue whaling. And, and you're right, if whale watching makes more money, then that's the question answered, isn't it? Yeah, but she also did uh, say that we're not going to let people wanting to come to Iceland do not decide what we do. So that's sort of the other aspect. It's sort of the proud nationalistic aspect mm. that no one is going to tell us if to hunt whales or not. And th th those are the arguments used. And, and in the late 80s, when the whale bans were coming into being, these were actually very really strong arguments. Yeah, Most yeah. Icelandic yeah. people would have agreed. You know, they're not going to tell us what to do. We will hunt whales just because they're telling us not to, almost. Yes. But now, with the rise of tourism, the I mean, the economic rationale is completely gone, if, if it ever was. And, I mean, I think that's most important. But I think, yeah, there, I mean, there is this one... Man who was, who was actually quite rich from other fisheries, who just who owns Kvaler, the, the which is the whaling, whaling company, who was obsessed with continuing whaling, and he mm. has some pull in the government. Um, and also, two of their boats, the captains of two of their boats, are uh, suing Mast for breach of privacy because, of course, Mast have the right to film on board, to film the whaling as it takes place. Two captains are saying, well, maybe you do, but our right to privacy is being breached. So that's an interesting sort of sidebar to this. Yeah, I I don't know if that will get anywhere. I, I mean, that's what Mast are supposed to do, I think. Yes, it's, yes, it's it all, is. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's a increasingly small but still quite vocal lobby in, yeah. in favour of whaling. You don't tend to hear people boycotting Iceland because of whaling in the way that you hear it a bit with the Faroes. And I think the Faroe Isles are in a slightly different position because it's much more visible. It happens on the beach yeah. there. And so there's there's more likelihood of you know grim imagery making its way around the world. I do, when I was doing this 20 years ago, I, I do remember people saying that I would never go to Iceland because of the whaling. And I mean, this is the time of the invasion of Iraq. And, and I mean, there are, I felt yes, it's hypocritical yeah, 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 yeah. to me to be boycotting Iceland at that time but you know but I don't think that the moral argument for whaling is strong enough to trump the economic argument of not doing it you yes. know and and I mean this obviously the whales are, are being tortured for hours before they die and and, and then some people are thinking is that worse than abattoirs at least they're free until then but in abattoirs you can control how it takes place and I'm sure in a few hundred years this debate will seem like absolute madness to people, you know, yes. how, how best to... I suspect a lot of things will in a few, yeah. hundred, <laughs> a few hundred years. How the best you kill animals. I mean, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I do think that morally it, it is, it's probably the right thing to do yeah. And, yeah. And, and in terms of the environment, so, yeah. So. Well, let's turn to Iceland's newest citizens, or two of them at least, two members 
of the Russian, how would you describe Pussy Riot for anyone who's <laughs> unfamiliar? We've got sort of punk performance yeah, uh, protest act. Yeah, and it's sort of a collective. It's not, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, Masha, who, who, you know, who is now become Icelandic. She's one of the most visible ones, but it is, it is a larger group that sort of come and go as yeah. to who. So there are two members of Pussy Riot who have been uh, very heavily uh, criticised is the wrong word to use. They've had their rights taken away, haven't they, by Russia. Yeah. They are Russian. They've protested against Putin. They've been punished for doing so. Yeah. Two members now getting Icelandic citizenship as an act of protection. Yeah. No, it's, it's a very interesting story. You should get... Uh, Ragnar uh, here to talk about it someday, who is an Icelandic artist. He's one of Iceland's best-known yes. visual artists. He's been behind the case for a while, hasn't he? Yeah, he was actually, um, some people I knew were, they were having this exhibit in Moscow in February of last year, uh, which is about the uh, the soap opera Santa Barbara. Yes, <laughs> remember, yes, yeah. Which was huge in Russia in the 90s. And this was sort of their introduction to capitalism. And they thought, you know, life is going to be like Santa Barbara now that the Soviet Union is gone. And he was doing an exhibit on this, uh, and it was quite interesting. But then the war in Ukraine broke out, Russia invaded Ukraine, at exactly the moment they were there. So he decided to shut down the exhibition, yeah. and everyone hurried home. But somehow, during this time, he, had, he just met, uh, Mushroom Pussy Riot, and he managed to get them out as well. Again, you'll have to speak to him about yeah. the details. Because we don't know which country they were assisted by originally. That's not been reported. Uh, no, if they, if they went through Finland. But uh, but Dragna did intercede, okay. certainly, to to get them out. And, you know, yeah. and because yeah. I think they're so small, everyone's connected to, to yes. everyone. And <laughs> uh, so he was able to. So that's how we have this Pussy Riot Iceland connection. Um, she doesn't really have a residence. She doesn't quite know where she lives. She's constantly touring now in support of Ukrainian children. Yeah, yeah. But there was an exhibit out in, in Grante and they put on an amazing performance in, in the National Theatre, which I saw uh, last November. Um, so, Okay. And they yeah. apparently had unanimous support from the committee who make the decision on citizenship when it is granted by Althingi in this way. Yeah. Yeah, they... they do that a couple of times a year. I think this was, you know, easy because they are well known, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But they also did give uh, a citizenship to some Russians. And I've actually been, you know, campaigning on behalf of some of those Russians who are here and who were in danger of being okay. uh, deported. But mm. um, And it's been seen rightly, I think, as a political act. An act made by elected representatives in the parliament, of course. But it's a political act in the sense that it does, again, show support for Ukraine and opposition to Russia. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I think Iceland has been quite good in showing uh, support for Ukraine. Ukrainians are welcome here. There were expecting 3,000. I think last time I checked it was 2,700 who have arrived. And, and they... Uh, from a legal aspect, they are doing quite well. They are welcome, but you know, I, I don't think that we should necessarily forget the Russian and the Belarusian uh, mm, dissidents mm. Yes, who are yes. here. Uh, and in, uh, would you say at greater risk? They are much greater risk of being deported. Yes, because the Ukrainians yeah. are not. They have, and, I, and I'm glad that they are welcome and that they have get sort of automatic residence permit. Yeah. But the the Russians and the Belarusians do not. And of course, if they do get sent back home. They will be in 
in danger e- here. Extreme difficulty. Okay, let's talk about Iceland uh, and what they've described as the special Icelandic tax which they are opposing. This is the idea that every passenger flying through Keplavik would pay 200 kroner and that money would go to the building of alternate airports because at the moment when flights come in and they can't land at Keplavik for whatever reason, the alternate airports are Akureyri and Ilstauder. They're not big enough to cope with lots of the planes. Sometimes planes are diverted to the UK or even Norway. So the Minister of Infrastructure wants money to build a safe alternative to Keplavik. Icelanders say that's fine, but don't charge uh, passengers. Yeah. I don't know. It's been, you know, ever since mass tourism here really started to happen in about 2010, there's been this ongoing debate on to how how the best profit from it, you know, like, should we have a nature pass, you buy a pass to be able to look at nature, but a lot of Icelandic people found that insulting because it would apply to them too. And, you know, the one benefit of living in Iceland should be that you can go and look at the nature and if you're being charged (laughs) for it, it would seem to completely ruin the premise. Yes. It's like when they closed the pools last winter because of cold, you know, you don't have nice hot swimming pools in Iceland and why do we even bother yeah I, well they, they closed of course during COVID but I, I do remember they closed for a day because of the extreme cold yeah. and it it felt like that felt kind of apocalyptic because yeah. the one thing that you expect to stay open all the time in a cold country uh, being Iceland is is the outdoor swimming pools because yeah. of the geothermal heat and of because course it's a cold country but we have warm water and exactly <laughs> in, in in abundance so so this um, alternate airport tax which Iceland they oppose and firstly the need for an alternative uh, alternate airport if someone is expecting to land at Keplavik and to get diverted to Ilstada that is not the difference between Stansted and Luton is it There's a <laughs> substantial distance we're talking about yeah. Uh, uh... Andre, the Russian who just got citizenship, I think he's, yes. he's, world's he's been leading, on the show a couple of times. Yeah, he's yeah, the world's yeah. leading expert on Icelandic airports, or at least the East of the yes. Airport. <laughs> so you would have to ask him about how, what exactly the practicalities are. And I don't know, should should we have an alternate airport? Yes, I'm sure we should, especially with all the traffic coming through. You know, should you charge, um, you know, guests specifically? And yeah. I assume that would apply to Icelanders as well. Because, well, I think that's why Icelanders say this is a special Icelandic tax, because it would affect anyone flying through Keplavik, but it wouldn't, for example, affect airlines that fly over Icelandic airspace yeah. to the USA. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think the tourism here in general still only pays 11% tax as mm-hmm. opposed to 24 uh, On VAT. Yeah, yeah because yeah. they were supposed to support the, you know, tourism coming mm-hmm. to Iceland, but it's already here. It's, you know, two um, probably soon three million people a year. Yeah. So there there should be enough coming in to sort of build more toilets close to the roads and to <laughs> yes, take yes. care of some of these infrastructure yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah. 200 Icelandic kroner is not a huge amount of money, but airlines, hotels, anyone in tourist infrastructure, they tend not to favour taxes because there is a fear that that will be seen as unfriendly and unwelcoming and might... I, I don't know if anyone would not come to Iceland for the, the sake of 200 kroner, which no. is about pound twenty. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, maybe this maybe. is the best way to go about it. I don't really have... <laughs> but I, I just know for sure that, uh, you know, 
from when I was growing up and you would travel across the country and there'd be no one there up to, you know, constant traffic with yeah, yeah. hundreds of thousands and millions of people traversing the island. You just needed different kinds of infrastructure. And, you know, and I'm, I'm surprised how, because these people are also bringing in money, how difficult it is to finance, um, you know. Yeah. Um, well, as, as you know, move. I've seen it, we've seen it as tourists since 1998 when we first came to the country. Yeah. Uh, Route 1 wasn't all surfaced Could then. Oh, Could sorry, you try again? someone has triggered my Siri. Apologies <laughs> for that. I don't know what we said. No, I remember that uh, there was a, a gravel surface on much of the main ring road at, yeah. at that point, and yeah. very few hotels compared to the number that you have now in some very small locations. So it's changed utterly in, in 25 years. Yeah, yeah. And you wonder how much, it, you know, it'll change again in 25 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think we're probably, well, before COVID, but it would get reaching again to around what I think Iceland can sensibly accommodate, which seems to be somewhere around 2 million people. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, we shouldn't really worry about people not wanting to come, but more about, you know, too many wanting to come. But yes. uh, but in any other case, or any case, then, you know, infrastructure needs to be well, financed somehow. As we speak, there are lots of people making their way to Iceland. We think over 1,000 for the Council of Europe summit that takes place uh, tomorrow. If you're listening on Monday, that's tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday this week in Reykjavik at Harpa. It's going to be very hard to get near Harper for a couple of days or into it at all. And a lot of the city centre is going to be closed to vehicular traffic uh, for much of the two days. So an exciting, quite tense week ahead, I would say. Yeah. I sensed it already when I was watching into this building yes. with, you know, all, all the... TV journalists running around and talking about, you know, or, or is Orban coming? No, he's not coming. And as well as the uh, Ukrainian, uh, no, Ukrainian, Hungarian uh, prime yes, minister. Because yes. uh, we don't know if the, if the Ukrainian president will come. It's I think it's, he's in the UK right now. Isn't yeah. He? He, and could he's, get, he could share a plane with Sunak. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, he has been touring the, the capitals of, of, of the major countries of Europe, Rome, yes. Berlin, Paris. Now, London, I don't think that is coincidental. If that will mean that he will, um, yeah, jump on a plane and come to Iceland, he might. You know, it's it's clo closer to London than it is to Kiev. Yeah, uh, he might also just be preparing all these people before they go. Um, it's interesting if you look at the international media; they're actually much less interested in this Reykjavik meeting and more interested in the G7 meeting taking place in Japan mm -hmm. later this month, where Biden is going, of course, and, and so Zelensky might even just be prepping them yes. all for that. Well. It I mean, if Zelensky is going to come, there's a lot of security around for the next couple of days. It wouldn't be a bad time from that point of view to, to yeah. come, would it? I don't um, think he'd be coming to go to the Blue Lagoon. He'd be coming to <laughs> to address the... Yeah, I would think so. He's not going to be Instagramming his, <laughs> his, his, his visit to the hot dog stand, is he? No, when I was um, an editor of uh, Grapevine, I saw I saw Bill Clinton stop by there on his famous <laughs> visit. And, from, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's a picture of him that used to be up in what was the restaurant in Poland as well. Pride of place for his his visit to that restaurant, which of course is no longer there. The old revolving restaurant on the top of Poland. Yeah. Well. Council of Europe, of course, is not the EU. It's sometimes confused. It's much bigger than the EU. The UK, for example, not being in the EU, but it is still in the Council of Europe. Yeah, it predates the EU by a few years. It's another. It's like Eurovision. It's one of these, you know, <laughs> let's create peace in Europe. Yes. Type things and. Yeah, and, and it includes all the countries of Europe, although Russia was formally kicked out after yeah. the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. After they took over Crimea in 2014, there had been sort of 
their their membership was dormant, but uh, but yeah, they, they also they run the the Court of Human Rights in Hague. That, but they don't meet very often. This is only no. the, the fourth time or something. And this right? is the end of Iceland's presidency, of course, yeah. just by the summits taking place over the next couple of days. Lots of world leaders in the uh, streets of the capital. And again, we talk about tourism. It's not going to do any harm at all to, to Iceland's tourist prospects to have the focus of the world's media, or at least Europe's media, on Iceland for a few days. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to remind people that Iceland's there yeah. <laughs> when they are planning. Well, Europeans probably tend to plan their summer holidays with more more time than than uh, Icelanders do. And but yeah, I mean Eurovision didn't do a lot for us, but at least we have this. <laughs> the mashup, the Council of Eurovision. That's what we need, I think. <laughs> Get those two two very different strands operating at the same time in some way. Okay, um, tell me about the book you have coming out at the end of this month. We certainly you'll be familiar, of course, to listeners, author and journalist. But you have another book coming out in English. Yeah, at it, the end of this month. It's my first book in English. Um, it's based on a book that came out last year, which is called Quad F which just means what if, so it's a counterfactual uh, history, or, you know, what what could have happened at various points. Uh, the first uh, That was the first counterfactual history book in Iceland, although I have previously written a novel called uh, The Eagle and the Falcon, and Falcon mm. about what if Nazi Germany would have invaded us in 1940 instead of Britain, which did. Um, so I'm doing a very revised and different version of that book. I'm just taking the chapters that have to do with Iceland or the Nordic countries specifically mm -hmm. and I translated those and rewrote them with more of a foreign audience in mind and also I wrote two completely new chapters one is what if Iceland would have colonized North America which we almost did but <laughs> <laughs> uh, why, why didn't uh, you know why didn't we make more of a go at it why, why you know what without spoilers what is the answer to that um well, because there probably wasn't enough motive to. It was too far away. Too far away. So, I mean, with, with any sort of colonization, you need, or people going somewhere, you need a push and pull effect. So, you know, we had the pull of this whole new world, which had better weather than either Iceland or Greenland had. Mm -hmm. Oh, there was a stop off in Greenland, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. A, they a were tiny, tiny evidence of some Viking settlement in Greenland. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, the, yeah, the Greenland one is well documented. They found um, also Viking settlements in Newfoundland in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they did sail around the coast. So up until the 14th century, people were going from Greenland to Canada to get timber. And they sailed around the coast, which would take six weeks. We now know that if they'd gone directly, it would only have taken two weeks, mm. which would mm. have cut down the travel time <laughs> a lot because six weeks, it takes most of the summer, which is important yeah, for yeah. gathering food stuffs for yeah, so they had plenty to do. Um, but in my scenario, I, I, I do play with something else that almost happened, which was in, in the year 1000. Um, Iceland was on the verge of civil war. Half the country was pagan. The other half was Christian. And, you know, the, uh, they were wondering which way to go and if they if this would tear the country apart. And they actually, eventually got a pagan who was the law speaker, who was the supposedly the wisest man in the land to make a decision. And he said, we shall all become Christian, but you can still worship the old gods in secret as long as nobody finds out about it, which is sort of... Uh, Sounds like a very British compromise, <laughs> isn't it? A real fudge. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some people say that Icelanders have always been sort of tolerant for our religion since others, that this is 
where I just learned that the law doesn't always mean what it says, because we're famously not as law-abiding as Scandinavians are. Yeah, but also I find the country's relationship with religion is really interesting as well. It doesn't feel like a religious place. It doesn't feel like a country where religion plays a significant part. And yet, as we discussed a few minutes ago before we switched on the microphones, there are all manner of holidays scattered throughout yeah. April and particularly May that are related to religion in 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 ways that aren't celebrated or marked. Yeah, People yeah. take the days off, but yeah. those those festivals, those days are not marked religiously, aren't they? No. No, there's Whitsun, which is sort of a big travel holiday. It's just coming up, I think, next weekend. There's or that day that Christ ascended to heaven after come back from the course people don't even know what it's about that, <laughs> yeah. or what you're supposed to do on that holiday but it's just sleep r- in I think yeah it just randomly <laughs> pops up but I think uh, later on Iceland actually did become very religious for a while during after Lutheranism was adopted with the Puritans so and that's maybe when the last vestiges of paganism were stamped out um, another example is that we lost the names of the days sadly even in English, you have Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday going back to the old gods. Yeah, Wednesday is is Wotan's day, Odin's day. Yeah, so exactly. there's a direct, direct link there in English. Yeah, and they do also in, in the Nordic countries and in Germany mostly, but we've lost that. It's just third day, fifth day is a very boring, mm-hmm. <laughs> boring day. But uh, yeah, getting back to the book, then, you know, what if this wouldn't have happened uh, as in Norway there was you know there were massacres you know all around by Christians against pagans and then at exactly the same time that you know the pagans would have lost because they did everywhere but Iceland still has ships at this time so they might have become religious exiles having heard about this just discovered new world over the horizon which is sort of interesting that you could combine those two and you would could have a pagan Icelandic colony in North America which may or may not have survived uh, for hundreds of years afterwards. I do, yeah, I do uh, draw up different scenarios for yeah. for that. The the stories that are told of those times are endlessly fascinating. I think to English speaking audiences, English reading audiences, and so I I guess this is quite a keenly anticipated book. Then, yeah, we will see. It's uh, called <laughs> "What If Vikings Conquered the World." Um, although it does deal with all of Icelandic history with a bit of Nordic history uh, up until, well, the last chapter is about the economic collapse, which is within recent memory. Mm. Yes, yes. But I, I do begin with the Vikings. One is about 1066. What if, if the Norwegians would have won at Stamford Bridge and would have conquered England, which was uh, a richer country, which already had a large Scandinavian uh, population, would and and... You know, various things. Canute the Great, for example, did manage to rule in the Norway, Denmark, parts of Sweden, and England if mm. if a white king sort of empire would have come into beginning and, and would have survived. And then we would all be speaking Icelandic now because that would have, that become, would have helped me. <laughs> that would have become <laughs> the world language, yeah. Um, That's a thought, though, isn't it? That a language that is now spoken almost entirely by people who live in Iceland. Yeah. 360,000 people, say 400,000, let's round it up. That that language could have been the world language. In a way, because it was lingua franca. It was spoken in all of the Nordic countries. Old Norse. uh, Old Norse, yeah. Yeah. And you could, you know, among the courts as far away as Kiev, China, now Ukraine, and 
the Anglo-Saxons were sort of intelligible and, and most of Germany. So, you know, that the you know, all of Northern Europe more or less spoke the same language. And it's only in about 1300 that it started mm. drifting off enough that Norwegians and Icelanders, for example, could no longer converse yes. fluently. So when's the book out? Uh, it's arriving with the spring ships from Denmark, which is a very sort of 18th century <laughs> <laughs> setting that, you know, I will. Will you beat at the harbor, <laughs> offloading it all? <laughs> That's the way I like to imagine it, yeah. I mean, it used to be that you could only sail to Iceland yeah. and from Denmark in, in the summer and people yeah. would is, is that common? Can we not print books here? Uh, no, you can't, but it's usually not worthwhile. Okay. I, I don't think anyone uh, specializes in that these days, which is kind of sort of sad that yeah. we, we've lost that. For it such also, a literary nation. Yeah. And I mean, printers used to be a very um, influential group here. Mm-hmm. They they are the ones who, who had cars in the 30s, for example. But yeah, it's um, it's just cheaper to do everywhere else. The problem is, though, that because the Christmas season is so important. Yeah. Then, um, if you need a new print run and you need it right now, it's going to take longer if you have to mm-hmm. import it from somewhere else. So, but yeah, with the spring, it's uh, you know there is more time, so we will be waiting for the first ships of spring to arrive from from Denmark. Um, the water whitings that conquered the world and other questions of Icelandic and Norse history. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, I started a podcast with uh, Grapevine on. On this very theme. So uh, the first episode was out last week, which is What Are Whitings That Conquered the World? Which is about the events of 1066, which mm. could have gone in, in different directions. And then the second one, uh, which is coming out tomorrow, uh, will be uh, about the question of what if Iceland is colonized North America. Okay. And then we will be having one one a week for this month, and then, and then by bi- weekly year. Okay, so, so the book then will be, it's a few weeks away, but once we're into June, it should be available. Yeah. And worldwide, too. Maybe some copies will be left in Denmark, people that want to buy them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look forward to that. I look forward to reading that uh, very much indeed. Uh, Valo, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for yeah. that. Uh, Valo Gunnarsson on Roof English. We'll play out with a piece of music, as we always do. This is Mar Gunnarsson. Icelandic musician, and appropriately enough, a song recorded in Liverpool, which was, coincidentally, the host city this year for the Eurovision Song Contest, as we mentioned. Maud has written this himself with Gudjon Stein Skulason and Thomas Elfjusen. Uh, the song is called Falling For You, and it's by Maud Gunnarsson. On Roof English. I was sitting in my chair, didn't notice humour there. At the usual bar I drank, I didn't care You started to talk At first I thought I'd walk But something kept me listening I thought we might swing But then I looked at you I thought, can it be true? I am falling for you You came on to me I thought, what could it be? But we went together I remember how you touched my hair I remember how you looked me in the eyes I remember how I felt the air I remember how you rolled the dice 
As the night went on, most of the guests were gone. But the two of us, we didn't feel the rush. And we talked for long, you told me that my song had made quite a twist on your love, making less. Then I looked at you, I thought, can it be true? I am falling for you. You came on to me, I thought, what could it be? But we went together. I remember how you touched my hair, I remember how you looked me in the eyes. I remember how I felt there, I remember how you rolled the dice. And we kissed on life, and I thought it was right. Nothing. Shut the door, those we left the place and headed out. listening to the Roof English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is English.